Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a visit to the Rossiter House Museum. The night before, I didn't sleep very well. I wiggled all night and woke up early in the morning because it was one of the exciting experiences of my life. Remembering World War II through the eyes of German POWs detained in Florida. My parents already knew in December 1944 that uh, I had become a prisoner and my mother was relieved because everything was going downhill at that time. We'll go to the oldest lighthouse in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The historic Rossiter House Museum in O'Galley preserves the Florida lifestyle of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The property is maintained by the Florida Historical Society for the Rossiter House Foundation. Tours of the historic home are conducted seven days a week, and the property is available on a limited basis for wedding receptions and other special events. Stuart Ferguson is the 2009 Rossiter Scholar and former site manager of the Rossiter House Museum. Well, the oldest sections date from anywhere from the 1860s to the mid-1880s, um, and it's originally built by the daughter, uh, Lady Ada Louise Houston, who is the daughter of Captain John Houston, O'Galley's first settler, and she and her husband, William Raish, started their part of the house around 1885, but we believe the kitchen may in fact have construction dating from antebellum times, and it was later attached to the house. And then the Rossiters bought the old wing around um, 1904, and by 1908 had added a newer wing, um, which was originally built across the O'Galley River by a man named John Aswall as sort of a winter retreat, but the, he moved on somewhere else in Florida, and Mr. Rossiter bought his house and had it taken apart and transported to where the old wing of the Rossiter house was and attached, and that whole process was finally completed in 1908, um, though the Aswall wing of the house was actually built around 1890 along the banks of the O'Galley River. Today, you can tour the historic Rossiter house, stroll through the gardens, and see the family's Model T Ford in the garage. Just across the street is the Houston Pioneer Cemetery, which recognizes the area's earliest settlers. The last resident of the Rossiter House was Carrie P. Rossiter. Born at the turn of the last century, Carrie Rossiter died in 1999. As Stuart Ferguson explains, Carrie Rossiter was a very successful businesswoman, a rarity in the 1920s. Yeah, it's, as far as we can determine, she was actually the first woman agent for Standard Oil. Um, and that is a, a, a big glass ceiling to have broken. Her father, when he came down to O'Galley, had, was a Standard Oil agent, but he died in his 50s, I think around 1921, 
and his daughter Carrie, his eldest child, who I think was about 22 at that time, had helped her father, James Wadsworth Rossiter, in his office as Standard Oil agent. She was very quick on the uptake, very smart, very hardworking, and managed to get the agency after her father died, going to Louisville headquarters to to plead for it with the board of directors, because by now in 1922, it's even more sought after with cars being much more in use in a southern Brevard County. And um, so they thought, according to her, she listened into the keyhole during the, the board of directors meeting, and one of the directors said, oh, let the little lady have it, she won't last a year. But Carrie Rossiter's agency with Standard Oil, in fact, lasted 62 years and became franchise and the Chevron gas stations in this part of Florida. Almost a quarter century before her death, Carrie Rossiter was interviewed in the mid-1970s by a young girl. That recording still exists, and Stuart Ferguson explains where it came from. The recording was given to us by Jennifer Marks, who is a well-known lecturer and underwater explorer uh, and treasure hunter, along with her husband, Robert Marks. The recording was actually made by Jennifer's daughter, India Fraser, who was a young girl in grammar school here, I think circa 1976, decided to interview some of the old-timers, and her mom and grandmother, this India's, were friends with the Rossiter sisters, so she went and interviewed Carrie Rossiter in their boathouse on the Ogali River, where they, the sisters lived. On this recording from the mid-1970s, Carrie Rossiter says that her mother was from Palatka and her father was a sportsman and fisherman from Georgia. They came to O'Galley in the first years of the 20th century. Carrie Rossiter shares her childhood memories of riding on the local mail boat. The mail um, boat left about 7 in the morning. And of course the night before, I didn't sleep very well. I wiggled all night and woke up early in the morning because it was one of the exciting experiences of my life. And we'd go down to the water, and in the morning early, the river was very calm. You could look down and see that at that time the river was clear. You could look down and see the fish, and it had a salty smell, which was very exciting. The, ma the boat would usually be running when we got down there. And the ma then in time, the mailman came with his mail sack, and we started to cross the river to Merritt Island. Now, our first stop was over at, at Tropic. That was the name of the little settlement, Tropic. And um, we'd stop at the dock, and uh, one of the Enzes would come down with a um, orange juice and cookies for us. And we'd put off the mail, and these people would usually send their order for groceries up by the mailman to Coco, which would be brought back on the trip home. And then the next drop was Lotus, and that was called the o Osteen Dock. And they would come down with food, uh, cookies or coffee for the adults, and we'd have a very enjoyable, usually the children would come down and bring their pets with them. And so, of course, that was exciting. Then we'd go on up to the Georgiana stop, and the same thing would happen. Uh, maybe one of the people who lived in Georgiana would be very famous for her cookies or some other goodies, and they would always bring them down for all the people on the boat. The next stop was um, Footman, and uh, the same thing would happen there. Always some of the children would have something new to show us, a bird or a possum or a new dog or some, something that we were very interested in. And then we would go on into Coco. 
in the mail boat would end would land in Cocoa, and everybody would get off and go do their shopping or their errands in Cocoa, and um, then usually then we'd have lunch. And I remember there was a little lunch place, a little tea room near the boat that had ham sandwiches in buns. And I have never tasted anything and with a Coke as good in my life as those sandwiches. By that time, we were quite exhausted. We'd usually go back to the boat and have a little nap. And um, around, I guess, 5 o'clock, the, the train would come in and the mailman would bring his sack back to the boat and off we'd go again. Now, going back, there was one great mystery that I was a grown-up lady before I ever knew what it was. There was one dock. No children or ladies could go ashore, just the men. And the men all wanted to go ashore. They were anxious to go ashore. And it was years later that I learned there was a moonshine still in a little packing house at the end of that dock. But it was a mystery for years and years and years. And uh, I've, I've had many trips on boats since, but I have never had the enjoyment or the thrill and excitement that the trip between O'Galley and Coco with the mail. Carrie Rossiter and her family were devout Catholics and hosted some of the area's first masses in their home. Uh, the priest would come, uh, well, I guess the first priest came from Delan. Uh, Father Michael Curley, who uh, later became um, an archbishop. Now, Father Curley was very handsome. He was a tall, blonde with blue eyes, and he was extremely handsome, and we small children adored him. Later, we came home one day, and they had brought Father Curley's replacement, a priest from Fort Pierce. He was Father Gabriel. He was from Switzerland. And he was bald-headed, and he was short, and he was far from Father Curley's, your parents. And we were very, very heartbroken, very disgusted, and we treated Father Gabriel very coolly for quite some time. Later on, he proved to be one of the great men of his times. He was a pioneer priest. He had the, his headquarters in Fort Pierce, and he would come up on the noon train, spend the night at our home, and uh, go back the next afternoon on the 5 o'clock train. And we had mass in one of Mother's parlors. She'd pull out her Queen Anne table and her very best damask tablecloths. And um, we had a, the, the, that parlor had uh, closing doors, folding doors. And um, so over in the corner, um, the Catholics of that area made their confessions to the priest. We closed the folding doors, and we kneeled down by Father, and we had our confessions. Then uh, our Father was a great diplomat. He would go up to the a little store in town. It was a racket store. It had pots and pans and all that sort of thing. Then he would always stop it. Then he would always buy something there from these people. They were Protestants, and they dearly loved him. And then he would go down to the drugstore and bring us home candy. And so we, we, we dearly, dearly loved Father Gabriel, and the present Knights of Columbus Council is named Father Gabriel Council. Using archival resources at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa, 2009 Rossiter scholar Stuart Ferguson is writing a book about Carrie Rossiter and her sister Ella with the working title The Rossiter Sisters. 
Well, it's very exciting because living uh, or working as site manager the past year and some, I have just gotten really into the, the, the roster ladies, and they loved, they were fascinated by the present and had full eyes, but they also loved the past and they thought about the future, instance by setting up a roster foundation. And what I'm hoping to do is to do a, a book on both focusing on Carrie and her sister Ella, who was also a businesswoman, had her own insurance agency, in their lives at the house and in the larger O'Galley community, and their their travels, because they both worked in business, but also involved in the church and in philanthropy and in their neighborhood. And um, I, I knew someone once who said, it's better to rather than worshiping your ancestors, it's better to be your own ancestor and create something. But I think the Rossiter ladies really did both. They were interested in the history of their area and of their family, but they were also interested in doing more and adding and creating. And so it'll be fun to sort of bring those two strands together and hopefully do a, a book that'll be a popular history that people will really enjoy and get a feeling for their lives. A frequent feature writer for the Wall Street Journal, Stuart Ferguson recognizes the importance of remembering our past in Florida. As someone who was born in Florida and had to live here a while before I realized we really do have history that predates Disney World, it, it, it's fascinating to see what happened right where we are today, but the layers that have built up over the century. And when you hear Carrie's voice on the recording, it takes you back to a time in Florida when most people, if they weren't just visiting for the winter, had southern accents. That voice that's a sort of combination of honey and old bourbon, and it just takes you back. And the Rossiter House Museum takes you back, and their diaries and letters and journals show the community that was here a hundred years ago. It's Things are overwhelmed by development, but the, the seeds, what they created, is still here underneath it all. And to me, I mean, I've just always loved history, so it's exciting to find that and bring it to the public and remind people, both native Floridians and newcomers, of the history we do have that's so interesting. The historic Rossiter House Museum is located at 1320 Highland Avenue in O'Galley. From I-95, take Melbourne exit 183 east to Highland Avenue. Flowers in the vase that you bought today. For more information about the Rossiter House Museum, access to the latest books on Florida, archived editions of this program, and much more, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Haven't seen a sunny day ever since he went away. Wonder when my baby's coming home. Haven't slept a wink at night. Worrying 
if he's all right. Wonder when my baby's coming home. People on both sides of the Atlantic were wondering when their loved ones would be coming home from World War II. As Janie Gould reports, many German soldiers were detained here in Florida. Florida hosted 10,000 visitors during World War II who weren't really tourists. They were German POWs, and they were held in detention camps all across the state. The largest was at Camp Blanding near Stark. Rupert Metzroth is retired now, and he lives in Martin County. But in 1944, he was an 18-year-old German soldier. He was captured by the Allies in Europe, shipped to the U.S. with hundreds of other POWs, and put on a train. None of them knew where they were going. In the morning, we woke up, and there was a sun going up on to the left of us. That meant we were heading south. And it took three more days, slowly, and we saw from the cars on the stations that we went through Virginia and then North Carolina, South Carolina. And after that, my geographical knowledge left. We ended up in Camp Landing. We were greeted by our fellow prisoners, which used to belong to the Africa Corps. Rupert's first job at Camp Landing was to be an interpreter in the shoe repair and tailoring shop. There wasn't much for him to do. I was bored. I was starting to fool around with the sewing machines. And I realized if I put a propeller on that spinning wheel, it works like a fan. From some cardboard boxes, I fashioned a wheel, and from that wheel I cut a whole propeller, attached it to the flywheel of the sewing machine. The faster I sewed, the cooler you got. So what I did is I fashioned wheel uh, propellers to every one of those sewing machines. And I got a little note the next evening where the ladies thanked me and they left a dime. I could buy a Coke. That was a long time ago, too, 10 cents for a Coke. Five cents for a Coke. We had uh, our own PX. We had a church. We had a barber shop. We had two huge hangers. In one of the hangers, there was a theater group. And on the outside of the hangers, every month they showed a movie. We had to sit outside. A German-language movie? No, all Americans. I saw all the roads pictures with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and Eddie Lamar. And then, of course, we were shown a lot of propaganda movies, too. You You mean U.S. US, movies? Yeah. We wouldn't call them propaganda movies. (laughs) No, (laughs) but to us, for instance, we saw the movie 30 Minutes Over Tokyo, and we were rooting for the Americans. During your time at Camp Blanding, did you get any news from home? We sent a postcard in Livorno, Italy already that went through the Red Cross, and my parents already knew in December 1944 that uh, I had become a prisoner, and my mother was relieved because everything was going downhill at that time. We could write a letter once a month. The paper we were writing on was treated so we could not use invisible ink. Were you in the camp when Germany surrendered and Hitler? committed suicide? Yes. What we were wondering about is what's going to happen to us when the war was over. There was a lot of hatred in the American press against us, especially since the news about the concentration camps. I personally didn't know anything about those concentration camps. First of all, I was too young. I was not interested in it. And then when I was drafted, we didn't have any news in the front line. So it was news to me what was going on there. It came out in the American press, starting Mm -hmm. about when? 44? Yeah. What did you think of that? Mixed feelings. First of all, 
we had the feeling that a German wouldn't do something like that. We still thought it was a propaganda against us. And for quite a while, we just refused to believe it. Do you believe it now? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm very touched with some of the pictures. The worst I see is when they showed little children. And that was awful to me, you know, that somebody of my own country could have done something like that. But in the meantime, 1946, we were sent to England. They told us we were going to go home, but uh, <laughs> ended up in England. Embarked on a train and ended up from February in Florida to February in northern Scotland. Rupert Metzroth finally returned to Germany in 1948. In 1954, he emigrated to the U.S. with his wife and son. He's written a book about his life called Think for Yourself. Cheney Gould prepared that report as part of the WQCS Oral History Project. Wonder when my baby's coming home Oh, I really can't help crying I'm so hungry for his caress Though I promised I wouldn't be crying I'm not brave enough, I guess Home will be a lonely place Till I kiss that funny face Wonder when my baby's coming home This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Today, Florida has more than 30 coastal lighthouses. Many are still operating, and some are open to visitors. Bill Dudley reports on the state's oldest lighthouse and its turbulent history. Then I became conscious of a new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trapdoor. Actor Vincent Price stars in this 1950s radio drama about three men in a lighthouse besieged by giant rats. People have always been fascinated by stories of lighthouses and those who tend them. Of all the lighthouses along our state's 1,800 miles of coastline, the oldest is the Cape Florida Lighthouse, built in 1825 to stand guard at the northern end of Biscayne Bay, near present-day Miami. The United States government bought three acres of land for $400 on the southern tip of Key Biscayne. They need a lighthouse because you're looking at the northern extremities offshore of the Great Florida Reef, which stretches from Key West intermittently all the way up to Key Biscayne. Ships were running aground frequently, and this was one way to hopefully warn ships. Miami historian Paul George. 
It must have been a lonely job for the keeper and his assistant. Only a handful of settlers had penetrated South Florida's territorial wilderness, and in 1835, these few fled to Key West after the start of the Second Seminole War. On the afternoon of July 23, 1836, assistant keeper John Thompson and his helper Aaron Carter were on duty when the lighthouse was attacked by a group of Seminoles. Author Kevin McCarthy. The two men went inside and bolted the door and went to a nearby window and began shooting at the Indians, and then when the sun went down, it got very dark down there, the Indians lit their torches and burned down the wooden door. The two men inside knew what was coming, so they quickly scampered up the ladder, the wooden ladder that was inside the tower, and as they went up, they cut off the ladder behind them so the Indians couldn't follow. The Indians rushed in and began shooting their rifles up the tower toward the two men. As the inside of the tower filled with flames from barrels of burning lamp oil, Thompson and Carter were forced outside onto a two-foot-wide balcony at the top. The light and its glass lenses exploded with the heat. As Carter lay dying of his wounds, Thompson, in despair, picked up a keg of gunpowder, intending to blow himself up along with the lighthouse and the Indians. He took the gunpowder, lit the fuse, raised the cast, the keg above his head, threw it down the shaft, it exploded, and the lighthouse continued to stand. The explosion was heard by a Navy ship 12 miles out to sea. After the Indians left, the sailors rescued Thompson, but the lighthouse sat idle for nearly a decade. Then, in August 1861, Cape Florida's light was put out again, this time the work of Confederate sympathizers. It's federal property, but it's in the Confederacy. Uh, They probably knew that the Union blockade would wrap itself around the coast of Florida, and this would be one way, perhaps, where they could hurt that blockade's effectiveness. The lighthouse was rebuilt again, only to be decommissioned in 1878 when a new light was installed a few miles offshore on the reef itself. At the start of the Spanish-American War in 1898, Cape Florida became one of 36 signal stations along the East Coast, intended to warn the citizens of Henry Flagler's new Miami settlement of approaching Spanish warships. There was this very real fear Spanish were going to invade Miami. Why is beyond me? Miami had 1,200 people, and it had a very shallow bay. The bigger question is, why would you want to invade Miami? It was a brand new, raw town of no importance at all. But it was also, I think, on the part of Mr. Flagler, I, I wouldn't say he fanned the fears, but he took advantage of them to promote his new town. He was able to get a Spanish-American war camp there. A lot of journalists came down. They wrote about the town. Finally, in the late 1960s, the state of Florida bought the southern tip of Key Biscayne, creating Bill Bagg's Cape Florida State Park, named after a Miami news editor who had campaigned to save the area from development. In 1978, after a hundred years of darkness, the light was turned on again as a navigational aid. Each year, thousands of visitors climb the 119 iron steps to the top of the lighthouse tower. It's the oldest structure in South Florida, an area where almost everything is new. We had hardly anybody living here until the 20th century, and this is something that predates that by 75 years. So I think it conjures up a lot of images of you know, a very pristine, primitive environment once upon a time when it was operating. And it's one of the very few vestiges we have of our 19th century heritage. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. Visit us on the web at flahum.org. 
Join us again next week for another edition of Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broke-Markle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.